Well, good morning again. You guys doing well? Yeah? It's a little bit cool in here. This is great. It's great to see you guys. You, you look awake. You look joyful. Uh, some of you are even dressed well. That's awesome. Um, I get it. I get it. We're in Central Oregon. There's like a clash of styles around here, right? There are people that drive trucks and there are people that drive sprinters. And the two are very different from each other. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker this, like last month. It was on a truck and it said, one less sprinter, right? <laughs> There's a little bit of a clash happening right now in Central Oregon. Can you feel it? And I can see it. I can see it. Some of you look like at any moment you could like come out of here and like ford a river and spend a week in the woods. You know, you got like chacos and the keens, the weird sandals and like a, the, the hydro flask, right? And then maybe like zip off cargo pants, you know? <laughs> and then the rest of you, you know, you know who you are. You look like you shop at Wilco or Coastal. And, uh, and, and the reality is you're going to go home and like do some farming stuff, right? Yeah, harvest time right now. Yeah, get some raspberries, you know, some of the squashes ready. I don't know, milk a goat or something. Anyways, you look good. Oh, speaking of goat, that is the greatest of all time. Um, clearly, clearly some of us don't subscribe to the GQ style magazine, right? But, um, but last month, our very own Brett Anderson was featured in the pastor edition. I don't know if we have a copy of that anywhere, if there is, there, oh, yeah, did you guys see this? Wow. The original worst dressed pastor. Your very own, Brad Anderson. I can't believe you got a full spread. That's amazing. I learned all sorts of things about Brad I didn't know, including that he still plays video games. It's amazing. He's the OG, the original worst dressed pastor. Um, Britton, you can take that off. There's things on there that aren't appropriate. <laughs> Listen, I, uh, I picked up a copy of this magazine for 75 cents here in the U.S., which is interesting because that means it's worthless in Canada. <laughs> they can't give them away. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, let's get into it. Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the title of this teaching is called Kingdom of Generosity. And in this teaching, we're going to see as well a clash, much like the clash of styles here in Red Men. We're going to see a clash of kingdoms. So if you will, open up in your Bible or your Bible app to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And just keep a finger there for a second. Now, whether you are aware of it or not, we are living in a time where Jesus' kingdom is invading the kingdoms of our world. A clash of kingdoms, if you will. Or think Game of Thrones or the battle from Middle Earth. And this has been going on since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. It's an, it's an ongoing story that we're all living into right here, right now. And it starts from the first few pages of your Bible in Genesis where God created the heavens and the earth and then placed humans into a garden and commanded them to flourish. It was a good command to rule with God as king and to rule with him over everything. But as you guys have probably heard by now, you know the story, humans rebelled against God. They rebelled against his rule, and they chose to define good and evil for themselves. 
instead of how God intended. And the rest, they say, is history. By chapter 4, things have gone horribly wrong. There is murder, there's lying, there's blaming, jealousy, greed, slavery, polygamy, violence, and abuse of all kinds. Chapter 6 of Genesis says this in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But God continued to look for a way to renew creation. That's what our God is in the business of, renewing creation and finding men and women to usher back in his kingdom. We call this the Old Testament. You can read about it anytime. However, as many of you have read, humans failed to do this, we know. One after the next, people are left longing for the kingdom of God to return justice and order and beauty back to creation. And then... And then, 2,000 years ago, the Son of God appears, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, right there in the middle of the world where, I don't know if you know this, where all those continents converge in Israel, in modern-day Israel and Palestine. And he begins to usher in this kingdom through himself by the power of his Holy Spirit in obedience to the Father. And this kingdom that he's revealing to us Uh, It's very different from what everyone expected. Can you agree? Yeah. And we pick up the story today in the Gospel of Matthew, written by one of Jesus' apprentices. That's Matthew. And we're right in the thick of this story, longing for God's kingdom to come to take over our false kingdoms here on earth. Now, before I read, I'd like to cue up a video from the Bible Project. You guys know we are huge fans of the Bible Project around here. Um, you know I'm all about context. Uh, we've been in the Gospel now for like eight, or the Gospel of Matthew for about eight months, okay? So we're flying through it, right? We are flying through Matthew. Uh, coming up in the fall, this is good, we're actually going to take a three-week break to do what I guess right now we're just calling it a vision series because we don't have a better title than that. Um, and then we'll get back into Matthew and probably be done with this whole gospel before Advent, before uh, Thanksgiving. Yes, going so fast. So, um, all to say, we've got a Bible Project video to help give us some more context. There's a lot of you that are new here, and I think this will get you right up to speed. Britton, if you're ready, I'm ready. And uh, if you're not, I'm going to keep saying gospel stuff. Okay. In the first video, we saw how Matthew introduced Jesus as the Messiah from the line of and as a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and also as Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. After Jesus announced and taught about the arrival of God's kingdom, and after he brought the kingdom into day-to-day life among the people of Israel, we saw that Jesus was accepted by many, but rejected by others, especially Israel's religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so the big question is, how is this conflict between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, explore all of the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign is very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all of these people are excited about Jesus, they think he's the great prophet and the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. 
And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher, he's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws. And he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah, because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Well, Peter and the disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside-down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our value systems. So in the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant Messiah, you must become a servant yourself. Yeah, that's good stuff. You can go watch that. It's free. And donate to those guys. They're great. We love them. So the big themes are the suffering servant and the upside-down kingdom. We'll get into our study now. Um, If you will, let's actually just kind of pray. I think that would be fitting right now. So Lord, just one more time, we want to quiet down our minds and our hearts. And just watching that video, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about your kingdom breaking into our world, but only by your means, Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. We cannot have any other Lord sitting on the throne of our hearts. If you're not Lord of all, you're not Lord at all. So God, we surrender all to you this morning. Would you lead us through this scripture? Amen. Amen. So, Today is really simple, just a continuation of the section that we've been in the past two weeks. And the takeaway from today is, now pay attention, right? This is where the teacher gives you the answer to the test at the end of class. The takeaway from today is this, Jesus's kingdom is not at all like your kingdom. It's not at all like our kingdoms today. It's not like Caesar's kingdom or the lion kingdom or the safari kingdom or your mama's kingdom, for that matter. It's not like our culture's kingdoms of today. It's not like our nation. It's not like our political kingdoms or any other kingdom that you can think of. It functions on an entirely different spectrum or a rule of life. Matthew Schreiner, somebody that we've been following to get our notes for this entire book, he says it this way. He calls Jesus' kingdom a reversal of human expectations. Jesus' kingdom is a reversal of human expectations. Thus, Jesus offers us a new way to be human. Got it? Okay, let's go. Here we go. Last week in chapter 19, there was this rich young ruler who is doing everything right. But when he is asked to sell all he has to give to the poor, 
and follow Jesus as his disciple, he can't do it. You guys remember last week? He can't do it. Then the 12 disciples who are feeling really good about themselves right now, because remember, they, they left behind everything to follow Jesus. They say this, and we'll, we'll, we'll catch up. Verse 28 of chapter 19. So catch this. Verse 28 of chapter 9. This is what leads us into chapter 20. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, I love that language, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields like their businesses, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now catch this last nine. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Okay, first, last, last, first. Like what are we talking about here, Jesus? Well, Jesus keeps on talking. If you remember, in the original Greek, there are no chapter breaks. So he goes right on from that statement, right into chapter 20. And go figure, Jesus tells us a parable about a rich guy and about the poor. And he follows that up with what he expects from his disciples. You see the connection. Verse 1, continue to read with me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A couple things to note here. So there's this guy who I think we can all say is doing well in life, right? He's a landowner. He's got a vineyard. He's like hashtag winning, right? Anybody in here have a vineyard? That was a trick question, actually. I just kind of wanted to know and be your friend. Okay. Yeah. He's doing well. He's in the uh, 1%. And there's a bunch of people looking for work, right? There's a bunch of people looking for work, as in they don't have jobs or an occupation. Now, scholars agree that these people were likely less fortunate, as in like the poor, the sick, or discriminated against for maybe being a foreigner or disabled. Now, a denarius a day is like a cut above minimum wage. So it's, it's more than enough to live off of. Think like twice as much as Carson makes being a school teacher, okay? <laughs> now make note that the landowner and the workers made an agreement, right? They shook hands on this denarius a day. Just keep that in your mind. Verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about 3 in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day, all day long doing nothing? They said, because no one has hired us. And the landowner said back to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So the landowner keeps going out to find more workers. Now, two things to learn here. The landowner, one, needs workers, right? There's a lot of harvest, so he needs people. And then second, he's hiring people at the end of the day. So he's really passionate. We can conclude he's really passionate about giving people work. That's pretty cool, right? Who's going to hire at the very end of the day just for an hour or so? He's passionate about giving people work. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired, going to the first. Stop. Now, things are about to get weird. This is not what you're going to expect. The landowner decides to pay the last first. So pay attention. This is like Jesus' way of saying, I'm about to mess with you. 
okay? Watch what happens. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came and were hired first, that is the ones who agreed, right, to work for a denarius, the early birds, the go-getters, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat all day. I get that, right? I was harvesting raspberries this last week. I did it for one hour. I'm like, I'm done. I'm going inside. Air conditioning now. Okay, so I don't know about you, but that seems like a good argument, right? These workers. This isn't fair. They worked longer and they worked harder. Don't they deserve more? Verse 13, but the landowner answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. As in, I want to give a full day's wage to these people, the ones who I discovered had no work, who are also less fortunate, so that they can afford to eat today and pay rent. This is a gracious, giving landowner. Verse 15, he concludes, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then Jesus repeats the line from chapter 19, ties it in a nice little bow here. Verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, how does that parable make you feel this morning? How does that make you feel? It feels a little unjust, right? It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Yeah, Jesus doesn't end the story how we'd expect. It doesn't seem fair. And I'm going to admit, this is a tough parable to hear even 2,000 years later. Our notion in society today is a place where hard work and long work are rewarded. But here the landowner gives generously to all just for showing up. Now that wouldn't go over well in today's workforce, right? Unless maybe... You're working in Hawaii. They probably get paid just to show up. I don't know if you've seen the workforce there. No offense to all my Hawaiian friends, but yeah, the surf is more important. Okay, fun fact. Did you guys know that millennials are the most entitled generation to date? Did you know this? Yes. Three times more than our parents, and I love this. A recent study found that millennials expect to be given a promotion every four years regardless of their performance simply because they showed up to work. Wonderful. What a great generation we have, right? Uh, I got to tell you a quick story. So my nieces, Sage and Rosie, um, had a lemonade stand this past week, ages four and six. Uh, blonde hair, big brown puppy eyes, adorable. And, and on top of selling lemonade, they sold brownies. Like, ugh, come on, here's my money, you know? Gosh. And uh, yeah, so needless to say, they raked it in. They raked it in, like three-digit paycheck, okay? Yeah. Um, if you know Rosie, if you've worked with her downstairs, um, she kind of lives in her own world, and um, at a certain point, not too long into it, she wandered off. Um, she's four, so that's okay. Now, stay, Sage, the six-year-old, stayed on task, and at the end of the day, 
I love this. They have all this money. And their parents help. Is it cutting in and out or something? Am I? Oh, yeah. You're going to put that thing on me? Okay. Here we go. Stand-up comedian style. Britton, you ready for this? Rock and roll. Ah, so warm and nice sounding. I love it. Okay, so they raked it in. At the end of the day, the girls are like going through all their money. And their parents are helping them. And I love this. Um, The first thing that they did was reimburse mama for cost of goods. Right? Like, you didn't buy this stuff. Mom did. Okay. The second thing, they gave 10%, like a tithe, to the church. That's pretty cool. Right on. The next thing they did, 10% goes into savings. So good, right? Another 10%, like, honestly, these girls are going to own a vineyard someday, right? This is somebody to know. And then, and then after all of that, they negotiated the take-home. And uh, just a question for you. Who do you think got paid more for the take-home, the four-year-old or the six-year-old? The six-year-old, right? Because Sage worked longer and harder, right? Okay, that's my point. Back to our story. So what is Jesus doing here? And I want to remind us all that parables are a reversal of human expectations, as Schreiner says. So does Jesus have something against hard work? No. Does he want us to procrastinate? I wish, but no, clearly not, especially in light of the other parables that he tells. So we conclude that Jesus is speaking to generosity and grace. He is speaking to, in this parable, generosity and grace. So remember that rich young ruler in chapter 19 who couldn't sell all he had to give to the poor? That wealthy, this wealthy landowner looks for opportunities to bless others. He looks for opportunities to bless others who are less fortunate than himself. And this is where Jesus is brilliant because he stages this parable around grace. Grace. And I just want to give you some quick takeaways to think about before we move on. Grace from Schreiner says, In the kingdom of heaven, in the new community, it is formed by grace, not by merit. God's gifts are distributed not because they are earned, but because he is gracious. If God gives grace to others, it is a kindness to them and no injustice to us. As he says at the end of the parable, are you envious because I am generous? I have some more notes just from Schreiner, things to think about. Jesus thinks this is important, this parable is important, because it protects us from envy and grumbling and jealousy, which leads to division. Like, none of the kind of stuff that happens in church, right? No. (laughs) Also, we can be tempted to see Christianity as an agreement. Like, I come to you, God, and then you give me this. If so, we begin to feel that the master is unjust and that he is not being fair to us. And we can begin to think that God is not giving us our rights and our dues. In other words, our gut feeling of justice and ethics and right and wrong is better than God's. Finally, no one has the right preeminence or to a higher reward in the kingdom of heaven. In the words of Dodo and Alice in Wonderland, everybody has won. All must have prizes. I love that. Everybody has won. Grace, everybody has won. All must have prizes. Jesus keeps us from reducing our value to our productivity. 
Listen to that. Some of you who are burned out trying to earn God's favor, Jesus keeps us from reducing our value to our own productivity. Or you might say, grace is not fair. It's for everyone. I like that. Grace is not fair. It's for everyone. Just to wrap this section up, of course, a quote from, who do you think? Dallas Willard. Here we go. Grace is opposed to... We love Dallas Willard around here. Grace is opposed to earning, which means that true grace will confront the areas in us where we don't actually believe that. And it will also challenge our belief of that for others as well. Jesus was great about throwing these stories out, these parables, to get underneath our skin. Parables, much like the meta-parable, in Matthew's gospel, are meant to plant a seed in our heart so someday they will hopefully grow into a huge tree so long as our hearts are willing to embrace them. So can we embrace this parable? Can we chew on it? N.T. Wright says the parables aren't meant to get us to heaven, but to get heaven into us. So good. So it takes a while to let this stuff grow fully. Let this parable go with you today. Let it challenge you. Let it channel your grace and your generosity. Conclusion, in the kingdom of God, we are to lavish, be lavishly generous. We are to, I love this phrase, we are blessed to be a blessing. We're going to end on that later. We are blessed to be a blessing. Okay, you guys ready to move on? Jesus predicts his death a third time. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Okay, this is the third time Jesus tells us to his disciples that he's going to die and be raised to life. Did they get it? No. Okay. Did Jesus stutter? No. Okay. Moving on. Next part. No. (laughs) Now, um, this is the great paradox, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about death, but I do want to remind you of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It speaks about God, about Jesus, in this manner. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. My point is, in the kingdom, we do not fear death, and we do not fear service. As Paul says, we die daily to serve Jesus, to spread his kingdom here on earth. As Jesus explained in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In the kingdom of God, we do not fear death or the daily act of dying. Moving on. Verse 20, a mother's request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's John and James, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. This is a reference to Daniel 7. So the disciples are starting to put two and two together here. They're also thinking the last chapter when Jesus says they're going to sit on the 12 thrones. 
Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Cup in the scriptures refers to one of two things, blessing and or judgment. So it's fitting that he would say that. Jesus is, of course, referring back to what he just explained about his death and his crucifixion. But where he accompanied, where, uh, sorry, on his crucifixion, he would be accompanied not by James and John, but by two rebels, right? He'd be crucified next to two rebels. Now, James and John, they answer, they say, we can. Maybe that's naive of them. I'll let you figure it out. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom have been prepared by my Father. And that's true, actually. James would be martyred. We know that from history. We know as well that John would be exiled and die on the island of Patmos. But Jesus also shows us this whole time he's been acting out of obedience to his Father's will, not his own. Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I love what happened next. This is, this is where I think we get the phrase, like, come to Jesus moment. You guys heard that? It's like, if not that, it's definitely a holy huddle, okay? So it gets them all around. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Not what you're expecting, right? Jesus initiates his authority, and he says, it doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world who lorded over others. Instead, we are going to come others under others to serve them. That is different. That is so different. And I love... What Tim Mackey alluded to in that video, it's simply this. Serving is not optional. Serving is not optional. In the kingdom of God, serving is not optional. Tim said it this way. To follow the servant Messiah, you must become a servant yourself. You guys get that? Yeah. Now, I have like notes and notes and notes about talking about service Um, I'm going to skip them right now because I actually think what Brett shared a couple weeks ago was prophetic for our church. It'd be really easy for me to talk about how we can all serve better here at Redeemers. But honest truth, you guys are knocking it out of the park. Can I just say as a pastor, well done. Like, give yourself a round of applause. Yeah. Oh, you're so humble. Such a humble round of applause there. Come on, give yourself a round of applause. Yes. Hey. Um, Brett's challenge was simply this, that we would see service outside of the church. That the way you guys come here and give your time, the way, Donald, you come here and get donuts and become everybody's best friend, you know, the way that Charlie is here in the morning with Brett and I at 7.30 in the morning doing communion, the way that our children's workers constantly step in for other children's workers who didn't show up. Like, this is amazing stuff that you guys are doing can we do that outside of these walls? Can we do that in our community? Can we begin to see service everywhere we go to our neighbors, to our coworkers, 
in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Let's expand our view of service as Jesus has challenged us to. Now, I do want to say one thing because I believe um, that there's a lot of people in church like me who have baggage from this whole service topic, okay? Like my mentors actually had me memorize that last verse. Like whoever wants to become greater, you must be last and serve and slave. Like, Like this was drilled into me. And I don't know that I regret those early years of ministry when I worked myself to death, but there was something that I had to learn that's really important that I want you guys to know here. So what I, taught, what I was taught was like a paradigm, basically. And the first thing, Britton, you might have to go forward in our slides. The first thing was this. We are servants before we are the second thing, blank. And you can fill in the blank, right? You can say, uh, for me, I was a musician. So like, we are servants before we're rock stars. Yay! Or, you know, we're servants before we're fashion icons like Brett Anderson. You know, like whatever it is you're passionate about or whatever you identify yourself as. So this is like an identity statement. Yeah, we're servants. This sounds good, right? This is a great way to manipulate people in the church to work, right? <laughs> Free work right here. Uh, I forget his name. I know it's Paul Beloche. Paul Belosh, I was listening to him speak on like a web seminar thing, and he totally flipped this on his head, and he said, actually, first, our first identity is a child of God. Your first identity, Redeemers, is a child of God. Read Ephesians on your own. We are adopted as sons and daughters into kingship. We are heirs of the throne, co-laborers, if you will, with Christ, bringing about his kingdom. You are in the royal family. You are a son and daughter, which means that identity needs to be nurtured first. All right? Never lose that aspect of your relationship, of your identity with God. And then, yes, right after that, second thing, by following the ways of Jesus, becoming his disciples, we are servants. Makes sense. And then the list goes on. You can fill it out however you want, you know? For some of us that are married, it's like, well, yeah, then I'm a husband or a wife next. Or if you have kids, it's like, and then I'm a parent. And then sixth thing on there is I play video games, you know? (laughs) Whatever you want to do in your organizational structure there. But don't mess up those first two things. You are a child first. Second, you are a servant to Jesus. Okay, Um, last thing, just to kind of end our teaching this morning. I want to come back to that phrase, blessed to be a blessing. Redeemers, you are blessed to be a blessing. Generosity and serving were the big themes today. Now, did Jesus make this stuff up? Answer is no. No. Turn all the way back in your Bible or on your Bible app to Genesis chapter 12. It's in the beginning of your Bible. And we're just going to read really quick. I think this ties together the entire chapter for us. And not only that, this is a cool saying that I think will be a paradigm shift and change us as a church for the rest of eternity. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Yeah, this is a spot in your Bible that you could highlight, highlight the crap out of it. Just all over this thing. Stars, everything. Underline it all. First three verses. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country your people in your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, a kingdom of priests. And I will, note this, I will bless you. I will make your name great, so there's greatness, and I 
or sorry, and you will be a blessing. So catch those two things in bold. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham was blessed by God in order to be a blessing to others. You guys catch that? Say it with me. Blessed to be a blessing. I am blessed to be a blessing. All right. Like, if you need to get it tattooed on yourself, go for it, okay? Such good, good insight from the scriptures here. So next time you're faced with an opportunity to give, to serve, to be generous, think, I am blessed to be a blessing to others. An example today, <laughs> when you go somewhere like the Redmond Hotel, I love going there after this, or go to Westside Tacos, and say you buy like a canned drink, right? So you actually have to go to the refrigerator yourself and then go up to the desk. And then as you're checking out on the little like iPad thing, you know how it always asks you how much percentage you want to tip? So it's in those moments right there where you're like, they didn't do anything though, right? <laughs> I had to get the drink myself. It's in that situation that I hope each one of us will go, blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Okay. So perhaps the Spirit will slip that into your mind later today or later this week. Would you guys pray for me? Pray with me. That's it. Josh, if you could come back up here. We're going to end right there this morning. It is hot in here. You. Would you guys all stand with me, actually? I think that would be fitting. So, Lord, we, um, we say that you're our king, that you are our Lord. And I pray for the people of Redeemer's Church and those that are visiting, that your spirit would truly help us connect the dots, that the seed that has been planted would grow into an incredible tree, fruitful, biblical language for that. It blesses others. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that don't try to avoid the things of death or dying daily, that we don't look for ways to avoid serving, but instead we'd be the first ones in, the first ones to go to step up because of you, Jesus. We thank you, God, for your word. And now as we step into a time of reflection and singing and prayer and communion, Lord, this is our time to be with you to remember our first identity. Grace. None of us have earned this. We're here because of your generosity, God. Thank you so much, Lord, for inviting us, adopting us into your family. All God's people said, amen.